Business Women Rock, episode 42. Ladies, it's time to rock. Welcome to the Business Women Rock podcast, where we get down and dirty with the world's most incredible business women. Inspire your journey by listening to theirs. And now, here's your host, Katie Kremitzos. What's up, ladies? Welcome to the Business Women Rock podcast. I'm so excited that you're here. I'm very, very honored that you are listening. I've got a great story for you today. Before we get into that, just want to give you a little bit of a nudge of a reminder that we now have opened the exclusive Facebook group just for you. It's called the BWR Connect, and it's on Facebook. All you have to do is go to bizwomenrock.com and just opt in right there, and you'll be given all of the instructions on how to get into the group. It is buzzing right now, which is amazing. All of these great businesswomen from all over the world are hanging out in there, asking each other questions, asking for resources, supporting each other, and uh, I just absolutely love it. So I would love to have you be a part of it. All right, let's get on with the show. My guest today is Anastasia Lang, who's the co-founder of Hatch.co. Hatch.co is a super cool website that is sort of like an Etsy, but really kind of a whole new paradigm shift for how we as consumers purchase. And it's really based on this idea that we really love to be able to buy cool things from really creative artisans, but there's always some sort of a customization that we want to make our gifts and the things that we buy very special. In this conversation, Anastasia shares about her experience as a businesswoman, which includes a pretty cool job that she had with Google for quite some time, which really allowed her to see hands-on, you know, kind of what happens when you want to start a new company and all the different things that you need to learn. So it was a great playing grounds for her to be able to learn a bunch of stuff. And uh, no matter how much I nudged her, I couldn't get any super Google secrets out of her, unfortunately. (laughs) Anyway, but she's got a great story. She's going to share with us about how she started the company, how it's grown over all these years, bunch of hiccups that she's had, and just uh, like always, just being very open about who she is as a businesswoman and all the lessons that she's had to learn. So turn up the volume. The interview starts now. Anastasia, thank you so much for being on the show with me today. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. I'm so excited to tell the story about Hatch.co and about your whole business journey. It's been a really, really cool one so far. And so I'm really excited to share that with everyone. Um, Before we really get into what you're doing now, I would love to really build up the story so we really understand who you are and how you're really approaching this business. And I, I know that one thing is that you were actually born in Russia and you spent a lot of your childhood really traveling around and living in different countries. Can you talk a little bit about what that experience was like and maybe what, what sets of values that really imparted on you as a little kid? Absolutely. I can't take any credit for it. I think you know the reason we traveled around so much was because of my father's job. Um, my dad started out his career as a journalist. And so I was born in Moscow in Russia. Uh, we moved to Vietnam when I was about six years old. Spent three years there, then moved to uh, Budapest and Hungary for a year and a half, then Bahrain for a year and a half, and finally moved to the U.S. Uh, so my dad could go to uh, to graduate school in New York City. Uh, so we finally got to the U.S. when I was about around 13, 14 years old. And, you know, I think because I traveled so much as a kid, I have this travel bug within me that it's actually much harder for me to stay in one place for a long amount of time. I get very stir-crazy. Um, the one the one great thing about really spending so much time living abroad and, and moving every couple of years and being forced to move to these very, very different places was that it really forces you to find common language with people no matter where you are and no matter how different they are from you. Um, and I think that's one of the things that I've, I've carried through with me as I've grown up and as I've, you know, gone through university and Google and started my own business is you realize fundamentally it is all about people and the way you connect and empathize with people. I think about all the greatest successes that we've had and all of them have come down to people taking a chance on us and really being able to relate to us, our story, our journey, and being able to help us or partner with us in really interesting ways, which I attribute 
you know, to my team and what we've done here, but also to, you know, this lesson that I learned very early on, which is that no matter how different someone may seem at first glance, chances are you can find a common language, you can find a way to get along and do something together. And I don't think that there's any other company who kind of lives in that space as far as letting technology really be about the people. And even in this, even in sort of in this world where technology was really, you know, anti-people or really um, non-personable, but Google has been the company, kind of one of the leaders um, who has really brought that technology into a space where being all about the people. So you really, uh, you really started your business career as a Google employee. So can you talk a little bit about what you did there and what your focus was? Sure. Um, so, you know, I, I like to, my official career did start when I went to Google, although that said, even though I studied completely unrelated things at university, I studied psychology, sociology, and French, so completely liberal arts. Um, I was working all through university and I worked because I needed a paying job. I initially started working selling advertising, which was a phenomenal experience in learning, you know, how to deal with doors getting shut in your face on a regular basis. <laughs> um, and so I was selling ads for a newspaper. Yeah. Very, you know, it builds thick skin for sure. So I was selling ads for a newspaper and eventually through my experience with advertising, started doing a little bit of marketing for this newspaper and had been doing this for the, pretty much the entire four years I was at university. So when Google came to recruit on campus, uh, they tended to invite uh, people from, you know, who had certain uh, jobs or positions within the campus community to interview. And because of this position I had at the university newspaper, they'd asked me to come in. Um, and so, you know, I hadn't, I wasn't even considering interviewing for Google. I remember saying, you know, what could I possibly do at Google? There was really nothing there for me. And my friends at the time said, look, if you're interviewing for Microsoft, which I was, at least give Google a chance. And so I went on the interview and just fell in love with the company and the autonomy and the vision. And it really felt like a place that, you know, they didn't care what your background was. They just wanted curious, smart people who could figure a lot of stuff out um, and who would be able to take any challenge in front of them and, and find a way to make it work. And that was very, very appealing to me. Uh, and when I got there, I, I think to your point exactly, what I saw was that Google constantly put the user first. In a lot of team meetings when we were discussing rolling out new features or changing the way something worked, a lot of the conversation ultimately came down to how does this impact the end user, right? Which is something that my co-founder, Ryan, I have very much taken away as we've been building a patch from scratch. And what role did you have in Google? Like, what was your major focus there? Who were you dealing with? My role changed a number of times, to be honest. I came into a program called the APMM program, which stands for Associate Product Marketing Manager Program, kind of a mouthful. But basically, the idea for that is you were put uh, on you know, a myriad of products at Google and your job was figuring out how to market those products. Now, when I joined, I think I was marketing employee number number 80. There weren't very many of us at the time at Google. And marketing was, was kind of a new thing for Google. They, they hadn't had marketing, in, you know, for a significant portion of their history. And so I started at Google working on something called social media monetization. Now, this was about, you know, seven years ago, right? And so the focus of my job was how do you build technology that helps Google place relevant ads within a social media environment and make money from ads in the same way that Google made money from search. And what I loved about that um, was that there was no roadmap, right? This was before Facebook had become as big as, as it is now, before people really understood what was happening on social and what users wanted on social. And we were a very small team of engineers and product managers and marketing and, and legal trying to figure out how do we make advertising work within this very new type of environment. And so I did that for a couple of years. And then I actually moved to London uh, a year and a half in. I started Google Mountain View. Uh, I moved to London about a year and a half in. And I started on a new team in London uh, called the New Initiatives Team. And this was, again, a team that was all about setting up early stage exploratory pilot initiatives for Google. So the kinds of things that Google was still trying to figure out, is this an area we want to go into or is this really not, you know, our core to focus on? Should we let someone else do this? Um, and so our team is responsible for setting up the very first project of their kind, getting them off the ground, and then figuring out, is this something the company should invest in, which was phenomenally exciting. I mean, I, I really think it was the best job you could have at Google, um, 
what's made it very, very difficult to leave. So you were basically on a team that was in charge of trying a bunch of internal startups for Google, really. So you were seeing, you know, how to do the market research there. You were seeing if there was interest. You were rolling stuff out, creating product, creating service, and actually seeing if it stuck, right? That's right. It is very much like that. And that actually gave me, you know, that gave me the taste of the startup life. Of course, at Google, even when you are working on these pilot projects, uh, you have a lot more resources, obviously. So, so it's not exactly the same experience. You know, one of the main lessons I've learned is, uh, as you go to a startup, you are incredibly, incredibly resource constrained, more, uh, more than you can ever imagine. You know, your time, your money, uh, your ability to actually get things done to the extent that you want them to. So you have to be really good at figuring out, you know, again, the cliche is the minimal viable product, right? But what is the, the, the lowest common denominator way I can launch a version of this? and figure out, do people want this? Is this actually a useful product? And that's what we were doing at Google over and over again. Of course, it wasn't really kind of a minimally viable product to the same extent as it is with a startup, simply because you had brilliant engineers and you had you know, very deep pockets to get things off the ground in a proper way. But the sentiment was very much the same. So obviously, you took a lot of those lessons when you decided to start your company. Can you walk us through what was the inspiration behind Hatch.co and how did that actually get started? Sure. Um, So Ryan and I, uh, Ryan and I had actually met interviewing for Google, oddly enough. We were both going to the same university and met on the plane ride over when we were interviewing for Google. So, you know, we'd been friends for, for quite some time. And both of us had gotten to this point in our career where we were itchy for the next thing. You know, we didn't quite know what that was. I started thinking about going to a much smaller company, but nothing felt quite right. And so he and I, he was living in Tokyo at the time, I was in London. We just talked, started talking about ideas that we'd have. Um, and Ryan was telling me about this experience that he had where he was trying to buy a gift for a friend and he wanted to buy a unique piece of art um, that reflected the adventures they'd had together in Tokyo. But what he realized is either he had to buy a piece of art exactly as it was, or he had to commission a really expensive piece of art, you know, sort of a $5,000 really fancy piece of art, um, which he clearly couldn't afford to do. And that got, as we started talking about that use case that he had uh, trying to find a Christmas gift, it started me thinking along, you know, along a path of, well, every time I go into a store, I'm forced to make a yes or no decision for every product that I see. Basically, for everything I see, whether it's a piece of jewelry, a piece of home decor, you know, a pair of shoes, I am saying, are these things exactly what I want? Or are they just good enough? You know, am I willing to settle for them exactly as they are? Or if even the color is slightly off or it has a bow on the side and I don't really, you know, like, like that bow, I have to walk away. And what it made me think about was that, you know, there are all these artisans and designers and makers who are able to make creative, individual, made-to-order unique things. But yet our current commerce and retail environment just forces them to make a small batch of things and sell them exactly as they are, which is detrimental to the consumer because you're not getting exactly what you want. And it's actually detrimental to the maker because they're taking a huge risk trying, trying to predict exactly what you want. Um, and so we both started thinking about this idea and couldn't get it out of our heads. And that's where, that's where Hatch was born. At the heart of it was always some concept of customization. Although what custom means to us and, and you know, the, our ability to understand customization has really grown over the year and a half that we've been in this business because we've really gotten to understand what do people actually mean when they say they want customization um, because we believe it exists on a pretty wide spectrum. And how do we give them just the right amount of customization so it's not that big of a risk and they have choice, but not so much choice that it's completely overwhelming. So that's definitely been a big learning process. So I'd like you to walk us through exactly what Hatch.co actually is, how it's set up, how it works. Because my first reaction when I first heard about it and kind of uh, just was about to go to your website was like, oh, this is like Etsy. Like it's all these artists coming with all their really great artisan work. And I, as a consumer, can go there, buy it. But exactly what you just said is exactly why it's not anything like that. So can you, can you walk us through exactly what it is and how it's set up? Absolutely. And I think it does have similarities to Etsy in that, uh, you know, it's, it's a site where all the products are made by people. That said, they don't have to be handmade. So we have, you know, people who use 3D printers and laser cutters and all that, but there are people 
and small businesses behind these products. And our site is set up just like any other e-commerce site. You come in, you browse a curated set of products. So we, we curate every maker and every product on the site. So it's hopefully much easier to browse than, than an Etsy. Um, so you, you have a, a list of products that we've curated across a number of categories. And when you find a product that you're interested in, just like you would on any other site, and you click in to see more about that product, what you'll see are options to change various parts of it. So, for example, let's say you're looking at, you know, a, a gemstone necklace. You can come to the necklace and say, okay, um, do I want this necklace to be gold, silver, or bronze? Or you can actually suggest your own material if you have a really, you know, if you want it to be copper for whatever reason. You can change a gemstone to be any kind of gemstone that the makers offer, you know, offer your own. Um, you can personalize the necklace. The idea behind Hatch is that while it starts out, like any other e-commerce experience, the twist at the end is that every product is just a starting point for what it could be. And you have the ability to put your own creative spin on anything that you see to make it really something that you love instead of something that's just good enough. Now, you mentioned before this idea of, you know, this word customization and how you think it means one thing, like, okay, I want purple instead of the the yellow color that's on there, but that you're finding that it actually means a heck of a lot more. So as you guys have been in business for these past two years, what have you found that that customization actually really means? Well, we're actually finding that customization means a lot less than what we thought. Um, so when we started, uh, the prototype for, for Hatch was we had a bunch of products on the site. We launched with, uh, I think, about 100 products on the site. Now we have over 3,000. Um, so we had 100 products on the site. And as a buyer, you can come in and you would just be responsible for telling the maker how you want to change it and what you wanted. So it was more of the, the thing you would expect from customization, right? You come in with your own design and you say, hey, I just want you to make this for me. And I think this is what we thought people expected and wanted from customization. Basically, starting from scratch and having someone build something completely unique that had never existed before just for them. And so we launched the site uh, in mid-November of 2012, right around the retail, the holiday retail season. And we, we you know, put it out there. It was, it was awful. It was, you know, very, very basic. I'm still embarrassed thinking about it. How, how ugly it really was back then. Um, you got to start somewhere, right? Out there. <laughs> exactly. We have to get something out there. And that's definitely a you know, piece of advice that I have. You will be one of my investors said to me, if you are not embarrassed of the first thing you put out there, you have waited too long. And I, I do think there is a big element of truth to that. Uh, <laughs> I like that a lot, actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah it's, it's very true, right? And so we put it out there again, you know, this really kind of basic, pretty ugly site. And uh, within six weeks, we hit 10K in revenue. Now, we didn't spend a dime. So people finding us through search, just, you know, finding a product and actually buying something on the site. So we looked at the data. We sat down right after Christmas and we looked at all the orders that came in. And we're trying to figure out, you know, what kind of patterns can we, can we sort of spot here? And what we saw was that people were coming to the site seeing a product that they like. And rather than commissioning a unique version from scratch, you would say, hey, I love this, but can you change the color or can you change the material? Can you make the design slightly different? They weren't doing a complete one-off version of that. They weren't, you know, variating for that so differently and so widely. They were seeing a product and making a little tweak to it to make it more unique to them, right? They were seeing a scarf and saying, hey, I love this scarf, but here's the color of my coat. Can you match it with this? Or, you know, here's a necklace that I love, but um, I noticed you don't have a silver version. My girlfriend refuses to wear gold. Would you be able to make it in any other material? Or like, here's her favorite material or whatever the case may be. Um, and so what we realized is that, you know, you don't have to offer people the ability to make something from scratch in order for them to feel like they're involved. And they're customizing. Now that said, you know, the other end of the spectrum to that is if you're just saying to them, you know, choose size and choose color, that doesn't really feel like customization. That feels like the choices you're expected to have when you're shopping online. And so it's always about hitting, you know, hitting that right line uh, amidst the spectrum of custom where you're giving people choice, not too much choice, choice where they still feel like the product they're getting is unique to them. Um, I think personalization is another thing that comes up quite a bit, 
you know, people love to personalize things when they're when they're giving gifts. They love to put an inside joke on something, put a thoughtful photo, and do something very creative with it, right? Like, you don't want to put it on another mug or T-shirt. Maybe you want to make a wooden hand ca- hand-carved puzzle out of it, right? Or, or something very, very unique that you wouldn't be able to find anywhere else. And so we're seeing people do that, and at the end, they do feel like that product was custom made for them because there's a, you know, there's a very unique part of them that gets built into that product. So does that answer your question? Yeah, I love that. Um, One of the things that was very interesting to me was when you guys first launched in um, 2012, your company name was actually makeably.com. And you went through a Mm rebrand last year. And so um, we did. I want to talk about your experience doing that because um, you know, I think that there's a lot of fear around rebranding, like, okay, we already went into yep. the marketplace. Oh my gosh, we're going to lose all these customers. They're not going to know who we are. And probably a fear of how much time and money it actually does take to, to do a rebrand. So can you walk us through your experience there and what sort of, you know, what sort of thoughts and, and analyses went through your head when you decided to, you know, when you were making the decision to, to actually rebrand or not? Sure. It was very. It was a very emotional time for us as a team. I have to say, it's probably one of the more emotional times we've had as a company. Um, and I think the, the good news is that everyone everyone agreed we needed to change the name. Uh, and the reason why is, you know, we we looked at even the people who really wanted to spread the word about us and talk about us, and they would constantly misspell the name. They didn't know how to say it correctly. You said it correctly. Most people don't. You know, we've heard versions from. Makeably to macably to all sorts. It was a very difficult word to say. And so we realized that, you know, in, in the very basic rules of naming, your name should be easy to say and easy to spell. You can, you can figure out how to imbue it with meaning later, but it should at least hit those two criteria. And, you know, makeably in some way described exactly what we were, right? Able to be made, but no one got that because people don't spend that much time thinking, you know, you assume people be like, oh, what does that mean? But no one knows that. Um, so, so we wanted something easy to say, easy to spell, and, and easy to remember. And now we all agreed the name was bad, but we couldn't agree on a new name for quite some time. Um, and I think whenever you, you talk about renaming something, this dynamic sort of sets in, this, this kind of latent dynamic where everyone secretly wants the name they suggest to be the name that gets picked. And so you go through this process, which can never really be an objective process because you're picking a name, but it becomes very emotional. Um, and, and, you know, to be honest, uh, I was leading the process to rename, uh, and I didn't do it right the first time. I think I became just as guilty of having a name that uh, both me and my co-founder were really attached to that the rest of the team simply didn't like. And uh, I don't think I, I did a very good job running that process the first time around. So actually midway through, we ended up scraping, scraping the whole thing and starting over from scratch and running a proper renaming process that took about two or three weeks. Um, now what we did was, you know, we sat down, we thought about what are all the things we want to say in a name or what are all the things we want people to feel in their name. And then we had people suggest names anonymously. I would go through them. We had about, you know, maybe 400 naming suggestions. I'd go through them just trying to filter out the ones that were not uh, easy to say or easy to spell. Ended up with a list of maybe 50. And we would sit down as a team, you know, every couple of days and go through that list where people would anonymously rate the name. So I would hold up a name and I would say it out loud and people would rank it on a scale of, you know, on a scale of, of one to five. Um, and once we had that, we took the top performing names and the, the bottom performing names and we talked about it. And we did that two or three times um, until until uh, our head of engineering, John, suggested the name Hatch pretty last minute actually in the process. And it was the first name that everyone loved. And um, we felt like you know, it said all the things we wanted to say. Uh, it felt aspirational and ambitious and slightly mysterious. Um, and it, it did denote this idea of something, you know, something being created, something coming to life. And we figured, you know, it's easy to say, it's easy to spell, it's a word people know. Yes, we'll have to figure out how to really make that name have meaning and associate with what we're doing, but we're going to do that no matter what. There will never be a name that does all of your marketing and branding work for you. So we, we, you know, we have to accept that. 
choose something we were really happy with and move on. Um, and to your question about, or to your point about people being really afraid to rebrand and rename, I think we, we had that fear as well. And, you know, we talked about it quite a bit, but ultimately a name makes a huge difference. And the longer you wait, the more difficult it is to change name. Now, we were, uh, we were about a year into our company, and we felt if we were going to do it, now was the time. We really could not get anywhere past that and still think about changing the name, um, at least not without significantly more resources. And so we decided to, to take a chance and, you know, go through this process and came up with a name we loved and, and we branded. So, so yeah, that's the story. It was very emotional, though. <laughs> I, it sounds like it. I mean, because you're, you know, it's your baby. And then all of a sudden, you kind of have to like, move through it again. And, and I definitely can identify with the fact that, you know, you just don't feel like you can grow and you're sort of stagnating until you have that something new, because you know, what you currently have isn't working, but you don't know where that's you're right. going quite yet, you know? Yeah, that's right. And, you know, I think the other thing is um, we had, you know, Makeably, the name that didn't feel like a brand. It felt like a startup name. The L-Y ending was sort of very cutesy. Um, you know, someone described it as a name on training wheels, which looking back feels feels right. Um, I've done, I'm very, <laughs> I'm sort of a data junkie. My team always jokes that the only way to convince me is with, with numbers. <laughs> and so when we launched the new name, we actually did some testing to see how it impacted the conversion rate of people on the site. And we saw that if we held everything else steady, the new name itself increased conversion on the site by a significant percentage. I think mostly because it, it gave people a greater sense of trust. It felt like a, a bigger company name than something like Makeably. Now, I want to dig in a little bit to how you fulfill all the aspects of your business model, because on one end, you have all these artists and, you know, um, creatives who are actually creating these products that can now be customized. How do you aggregate all of that stuff? And how do you manage all of all of those people who are selling this product? Like, how do you actually make sure that that's all high quality? It's getting, um, you know, the orders are getting fulfilled correctly. How do you manage that? Yeah. Um, so what we do now is this is one of the reasons why we curate. We think when you're taking a product uh, and not just buying it, but saying, hey, I want you to change this thing for me. And and basically putting faith that the, the product you've customized is going to get there and it's going to be exactly what you want. You need to have really trustworthy sellers. And so when we started building out the, the, the maker side of our community, we really spent a lot of time making sure that we were picking good quality sellers that we could really stand behind. And these are people who really see what they're doing as a business in their own right. Um, you know, they're not necessarily doing this on the side or because they want to make a couple of extra bucks. They're doing this because they are aspiring or already professional artisans and, and makers and designers. And so that was really important to us. Also, I think if we were starting this business, you know, four or five years ago, it would have been much more difficult. But nowadays, thanks to places like Etsy, you know, every seller... Uh, and eBay and, you know, Kickstarter. There's lots of lots of other sites that, that also are part of this community. Um, every seller you can possibly think of will have an online presence somewhere where they have review scores and community feedback. So when, when sellers, when we either invite sellers to join or when, they, or when they apply to join, we take feedback and reviews on other platforms very seriously because it's a way of making sure that anyone we bring on board is actually able to deliver a high-quality product. Um, to your point about how do we make sure orders go through and, and the, the product quality is high, uh, we, we do ask sellers, especially those that are starting out and that are brand new, to send products to our office. So we will touch them and make sure that they are high-quality products, that you know, they're goods, again, that, ha- that deserve the price point they're being asked um, and that, that are durable and that are sturdy. Um, but if we do see that, we monitor every order. And if we do see that a uh, buyer is unhappy or there's a significant gap between what was promised and what the seller uh, delivered at the end, we are unapologetic about kicking those makers off. Ultimately, we want a community where every maker increases the perception of Hatch and all the other makers on our site. And so it's very important to us that buyers have a, a phenomenally great experience. Um, so we, you know, we monitor pretty much everything that happens. We have a phone number that any buyer can reach us on any time. Um, we really don't want to be the kind of place where people have to fill out five forms and never be able to talk to a human when something's wrong. Um, so we really try and, and empower our buyers to notify us if there is ever a problem. And I think as a result of being so open about 
what we do is actually had very few cases where things have gone wrong, which is really nice. I can still count them on one hand um, in the year and a half that we've been in business. So it's been nice to see. And I think the community the community is great because it reinforces that behavior among everyone else, right? So that's been that's been great. So now you're the curator of the best of the best artisans. You've got all this great stuff that can be customized. How do you go and get the buyers? Like what are your most effective marketing strategies that you're utilizing to bring Uh, to bring the people to you who will buy. Yep. And this is something every startup, no matter, you know, what the, what the industry or area will struggle with because you need a lot of buyers, but you don't have any money. And so you have to think about how do you acquire buyers or users without spending a ton? Um, And we've tried, you know, we've tried everything. We still get, what we're lucky is we still get a significant portion of a buyer to come in through Google search. They'll search for something, a product that's custom or personalized at the front of it, and they'll end up on Hatch. Um, it's one of our, you know, highest converting channels, which is great. Uh, that said, you know, we've tried everything from Facebook to Pinterest to blogger outreach to mailing physical postcards that everyone on the team hand wrote over Christmas. So, um, you know, Google search remains our best converting channel, which I know is probably not very useful for people. Uh, Pinterest for us has been working really well as of late as well and sort of climbing in the ranks of our best referral channels. Um, so we've really increased the amount of time we invest into Pinterest. I would say anyone that has a very visual product or has lots of visual products, Pinterest works pretty well. It's a great tool for for discovery. Um, so we've been investing more heavily into that. Another thing that works well for us is uh, finding other like-minded bloggers and people out there in the community who really like to promote non-mass manufactured goods, uh, who like to promote independent designers and telling them the stories behind some of our makers and some of our products. And, and this way, you know, it's not just about getting publicity for Hatch, but we really get to tell the story behind our maker and open up sales for them through Hatch. So that's been great as well. But to be honest, we're still learning, right? There's still so much stuff we have to figure out. There's still so many channels we haven't tested. We're just going after the most obvious ones and working our way down and trying to find and trying to find a gold mine really within this. But um, I wouldn't say there's there's one thing that, you know, we've nailed when it comes to buyer acquisition. I love the idea of being able to do like personal stories about your artisans through, you know, and have those featured on some of the blogs. Uh, and news outlets out there. I think that's great because it puts a personal, it, it puts a face on the company and these things mm-hmm. that people are buying. I love that. Um, and I'm sitting here dying like, okay, does any, does the fact that you get, you know, your highest conversion really comes from Google, you've you got to have known some insider information about how to do that SEO correctly to be, to be able to do that stuff. Oh. You, there's got to be some benefits to having you formally at Google. Like, do you get like discounts on Google ads? Come on, there's got to be some major we don't. component. <laughs> I wish we did. I wish we did. We don't. Um, sadly, Google, well, I, for the benefit, but sometimes I wish they were slightly more nepotistic about their <laughs> alumni, but they're not. Um, <laughs> but you know, this is where this is where Google search is. Maybe there are a couple of you know kind of tip of the iceberg tip of the iceberg tricks that we we know that maybe other people don't, but it's nothing that you wouldn't be able to find doing some you know some online research. But the Google, you know, the Google search algorithm is, is really a mystery. And sometimes we'll find we have huge spikes in Google traffic without us changing anything. And sometimes it goes down again, mostly because Google is running, you know, tests on its algorithm and it's constantly changing it and figuring out how to make it better and improve it. And so, you know, we try and keep up with all the latest information about what they have. Um, and yeah, have used a couple of things, but again, none of them are so secret that you wouldn't be able to find them just by digging around online. <laughs> just figured, you know, I just figured I'd ask the question. <laughs> um, I know, fair, it's a fair question. We get, they're like, oh, you guys are so lucky, you know, you could make sure you show up number one in search results. And we're like, no, that's not how it works. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, we got to work hard for that too. Um, yeah. I'd like to ask a question about how, what your experience has been like in raising a team. You know, you're sitting here saying we, 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 and and, um, so many of our listeners who are solopreneurs who are trying to grow out and hire their first person or wanting to build their team of independent contractors that can help them manage everything are sitting here wondering who is we and how does we work, you know? So could you talk a little bit about the, um, 
from, you know, you and Ryan originally having this idea to now being, mm -hmm. uh, you, you did let me know earlier on before we press record that you guys are just hiring on your eighth person. So can you talk That's about right. what that experience has been like, um, uh, hiring people, managing people, making sure everyone's on the same, uh, you know, on the same page, making sure everyone's going in the same direction, who has what jobs? Can you can you put a little light on that for us about what your experience in in building and managing a team has been like? Sure, absolutely. And again, it's an experience that's constantly being shaped and reshaped by by us growing and new people coming on board. Um, so right now, the team is eight people, uh, or eight as of this this morning when we our last engineer accepted our latest engineer accepted his offer. So we have four engineers um, and two marketing people. Uh, one who's fully marketing, the other one who does customer service and operations, and then Ryan and I. Um, and I do uh, a lot of our product work and Ryan focuses more on the marketing side and that's how he and I split it up, although we make all of our major decisions together. Um, so the first person we hired uh, was our head of engineering, John. Um, and, and, you know, it's very difficult to make a first hire, both from your perspective as well as from the perspective of the person coming in. Because Ryan and I knew each other, we trusted each other. But the first person to come in and join join you, you know, has never worked with you, uh, doesn't really know, you know, doesn't really know what you two are like and has to take a huge leap of faith himself as well. And so, again, this is where I think the ability to really to really listen to people and empathize with them and try and understand what is really important to you and, you know, uh, and, and what's really important to us and, and do we think we're going to be a good match, not only in terms of, you know, will we like each other, which I think is very important in a small person team, um, but also, you know, are you going to be someone who's not only going to come in and do your job, but actually help me grow this business? And this is the way I think about the first 10 hires we're going to make, maybe even, hopefully even, you know, the first 20 or 50 hires we're going to make. Are all these people, people who can sort of sit around this, this fictional boardroom table and think about how do we grow the company outside of just what their functional role is? And that's one of the things I really enjoy about our team now is, you know, when we have team meetings, our engineers will give feedback on marketing. Our customer service person will get feedback on product and design. So you have a team that really is able to talk and debate quite a bit about all areas of the company, which I think is really important. That said, you know, we've made a lot of, a lot of mistakes, right? Um, one was, you know, we've hired a couple of people that we ended up firing within, uh, one within one week of joining because we realized it simply was not going to work. And this person was brilliant in terms of their ability to do their job. Um, but personality-wise, it just didn't click. And you realize very quickly when you're a small team and you bring in someone who's not the right fit, the dynamic changes almost instantly. Um, and, you know, you have to make decisions. They're very painful decisions very, very quickly just to not to jeopardize the entire culture and atmosphere of your team. Um, I think the other mistake that we made was sort of a management mistake where we thought, you know, especially when we were a little bit smaller, we're five or six people. We sit in a pretty small room all day. We don't really need team meetings. Like everyone knows what everyone's doing. That's not the case at all. Um, and so, you know, now we have a weekly team meeting. Each week someone talks about, you know, a thing that they've been working on that's really important to the company. Other people get to provide feedback. We have, you know, quarterly goals. I do an update every week on where we are relative to our quarterly goal. So, you know, it's not to say that we've imposed all the structure, but you still need outlets to give people the ability to say what they work on, give everyone visibility into what everyone else is doing. Um, it's not necessarily always fair to assume just because you sit in the same place. Everyone will automatically understand what the other person is doing. And that was feedback that we got from the team. So something I like to do <laughs> is I, I, I personally quite like to get criticized on a regular basis. So I will sit down with, you know, everyone on, on the team maybe once every three to three to five months and I'll, I'll give them, you know, two week warning and I'll say, Hey, I want you to spend the next couple of weeks thinking about what can I do better? What can the company do better? How can we really improve? Um, and then I sit down with them individually, you know, I hear some of the common themes that are coming up and then we actually make a plan to address them. And I think it's very important. You know, I criticize people on the team. Well, criticize maybe sounds harsh, but I give feedback all the time. And it's very important to me that everyone else on the team is able to give me feedback because I'm going to make a lot of mistakes. You know, I'm, I'm going to mess things up and I just want to make sure that I'm aware of them. And when I can, I'm fixing them. So 
that's something else we do to ensure that things that aren't making people so happy get get taken to the top and sort of addressed pretty quickly. Anastasia, in you know, in these years of you starting the company and just co- going through this building process and you know you've alluded to it you know a couple times about you're just continuing to learn continuing to learn and by the way people who have had their companies for 40 years that I've talked to are definitely saying the same thing which is really great Um, (laughs) that's great yeah yeah, I mean we're we're all evolving what have you had some moments that were just super hard for you or just really low and um, and if you had what was that moment and how did you get through it um I think I think something that I I found was quite difficult initially was when I started fundraising. And the reason that I found it very difficult was because I think a lot of the tech press and, and you know, tech publicity out there gives the perception of, you know, you walk into an investor meeting, you pitch your idea, they write you a check then and there, and boom, you raise a million dollars in three days, you know, or, or three hours. And the reality is that's not how it happens. But I think this slightly naive perception that I had going into the process was that, oh, you know, I'll take a meeting or two and we'll get a big check and we'll be done with it. Reality was very different. Um, And so, you know, I remember coming home after one or two meetings and sort of realizing, okay, this was not going to be my reality. And just feeling, you know, what am I doing wrong? And if all these other people have done it, why haven't I been able to do it? And, And what does it say about me or, you know, my ability to be a good leader and all this other stuff? And then I realized very quickly that a lot of the, the stuff in the media was either A, hyperbolic, or B, reflecting sort of the 1% use case. And so I really like to talk about, you know, the the grind and the hustle that is fundraising because I want people to know that this will not happen overnight. You know, for us, it took six months to raise our seed round. For some people, it'll take a year. And that's okay. That's normal. That doesn't mean that you will not raise your round. It doesn't mean that, that people don't find value in your company. You will have meetings where, you know, experienced investors will look at it and be like, you know, we don't see the value in this. We don't think this is a business. And you might even be unlucky enough to have three or four of those meetings in one day. And you'll come home feeling completely, you know, deflated, uh, thinking, why am I doing this? You know, if no one believes in the idea, and you just have to learn very early on to put that aside and keep fighting. I find it, you know, slightly motivational to be able to prove people wrong. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm very competitive, my, my uh, team likes to say, which is true. Um, and so I, I think there is, there is definitely a difference between listening to feedback and taking it on board versus listening to everything that people say and letting that change your vision and letting that change the trajectory of, of the path that you're on. Um, and so, yeah, so I would just say, you know, fundraising is a, is a difficult process. Getting, getting your first journalist to write about you is a difficult process. You will hear a lot of no's uh, during, during those times. And, and that's normal and that's okay. And maybe you'll hear yes on the 20th time, or maybe it'll be the 100th time, but you will get there if you persevere long enough. I think most challenges, truthfully, are just about, are you willing to put in the time and effort to make it work uh, versus, you know, versus is the idea in itself objectively good or objectively bad? Mm, I love that. Um and you have now successfully raised a million dollars in your initial round of funding. So big congratulations to you. And, you know, obviously you, Thank be- you behind the screen of the media version of what that might look like. You've obviously done a lot of work to be able to do that. And so many of our guests before have actually spoken to that about it's not really what it looks like from the outside. I mean, you're really hustling. And so, no. much, so much of your energy has to veer from, you know, it, or it has to sort of play a dual role in building your business and, you know, doing the fundraising, which are two completely different sets of energies that have to coexist at that same time. So, um, Absolutely. so it, it's a lot. Um, I want to ask you why you decided to get the funding, because I think that, you know, there's definitely companies out there, definitely startup companies who want to really do it on their own and they want to keep 100% mm-hmm. of, you know, the equity in the company. They don't want to give that up. You know, what was your decision in being able to actually go to investors and find investors for your company? It's absolutely. And we, you know, I hear this uh, quite a bit from some of my friends who are doing startups, this debate about, do I just log it out on my own or do I take money? And I think ultimately it depends on, 
a the business that you have and be be roadmap in the business that you want to build. I think some businesses lend themselves much better to being profitable much more quickly with you know a lot less uh, a lot less traction. So for example, if you're an enterprise business and you can land you know two hundred thousand dollar contracts, you're okay. You might not need much more. You can pay a couple of people's salaries on that. You don't actually need investor money unless you want to grow more quickly, right? We were in a place where we knew we needed to take at least a seed round of funding to get things going. Um, Ryan and I invested a significant portion of our own money into the company just to get it off the ground and get it started. But we realized very quickly, though, we could keep going on the trajectory we were on. It would be very, very slow. Uh, and we needed to bring on engineers, and engineers are expensive, uh, to accelerate our growth curve and go much faster. And, and that's one of the reasons why we went out there and got a round of funding from a number of venture capitals and, and angels out there. I think the other benefit that you get is, you know, you get some really smart people around the table helping you that otherwise wouldn't be involved because now they have a stake in the business. Now, that said, you know, I completely understand the view of not wanting to give away your equity but I think sometimes that view actually hinders your growth rather than promotes it. Obviously, it depends on the business you're in. But I don't think holding on to every single percentage of your equity is always the right decision. Anastasia, I know you're a big reader. Can you share with us a couple of the books <laughs> that you have read that have really um, really significantly impacted you personally or as a businesswoman? Uh, you know, the, the difficult thing about that is after, I think around the time when I started Google, I uh, rarely read nonfiction anymore, uh, mostly because I feel like I am reading business things all day for work. Uh, so when I read, I do read quite a bit, but when I read my spare time, I mostly try and read fiction. Um, so I don't know if these things that would be helpful at all. My, one of my latest favorite books that I read is a book called uh, The Elegance of the Hedgehog by Muriel Barbary, who's a philosophy professor in France. And it was a phenomenal, phenomenal book um, about, you know, a, a young girl and, a, and an older door woman in her building who becomes sort of like kindred spirits, which is a beautifully written sort of very philosophical, what is the meaning of life kind of typically French book. Um, so I quite like that, but I, there really hasn't been anything I've read nonfiction in the past, you know, or on a regular basis that I can, I can recall. Well, that's okay. It's not even just nonfiction. I mean, I know for so many of us, the, the going into the fiction space is really such a great escape. And so many times with good fiction books, you get so many great ideas out of there that really make a difference in your life or it brings you up or it gives you an escape or, you know, you're seeing something in a whole new different light. So yeah, I, I mean, all over the board as far as, you know, what's, uh, what's really made an impact or what really, you know, what books have really made you happy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I find that for me, reading is one of the few ways that I can get my brain to shut off and actually take a break from whatever it is I'm thinking about and then come back to something with a fresh perspective, which is why I tend to read more fiction now, because it's much better at pulling me out of whatever it is that I'm thinking about. That and exercise are pretty much the only two things that are able to do it for me. Otherwise, I'm thinking about Hatch and you know the problems that we have and everything else we're trying to do all the time. But, but reading a good book and, you know, doing some intense exercise take me out of that, which is nice. Anastasia, I really want to bring this conversation to a close by asking you, what is your vision for Hatch.co? And, like, what are some of the new and exciting things that you guys have coming up? So our vision for Hatch is to be the new way that people shop. We want to be a place where you don't have to settle for anything, where you can have whatever you want and actually be involved in the process of creating that thing. And I believe that once people realize that they don't have to settle for things that are good enough, they'll actually realize how easy it is for them to get exactly what they want in an environment that's just as simple as, you know, putting in an object into a cart. Um, and in the same way that, you know, Amazon was one of the first places that people shopped online when the internet started coming of age and people started going online in droves, we want to be the first place and the place that people associate with when they want to get something unique and specific made just to them. And our vision down the road is to be the place where you can get everything from cars to candy bars custom made just based on your specifications. Um, so that's what we're building. And we want to build a place with you know, some of the very best companies and, and makers and retailers around the world. Um, 
And so, yeah, that's, that's what we're gearing towards. That's awesome. And lastly, what the heck keeps you fired up? <laughs> I mean, you've got so much energy towards this business and, you know, just like any business endeavor, it's a lot. So what is it that truly keeps that fire inside of you going? I think I, I genuinely really believe in the idea and I really believe in what we're doing. I think if I didn't, if I didn't think that this was, you know, there was a huge opportunity here, this was worth building. Um, I wouldn't, I don't think I would have the same amount of energy. And I genuinely feel like, I mean, I understand that what I'm doing is not curing people from cancer. I get that. But I genuinely feel like if we make this work, you will have so many more small businesses and individual artisans who can actually do this as a business without losing, you know, thousands of dollars having to predict consumer demand and going out of business when they're not able to do so. Because that's the number one reason small businesses go out of business is because they can't accurately anticipate what their consumers will want. I think if we can solve the problem, that's something I'm really excited about because it's empowering a whole other different workforce, a very creative workforce that currently doesn't have a huge a giant place in, in society, right? They're relegated to these very functional jobs and they end up doing this stuff on the weekends or, uh, or during the evenings. Um, I think the other thing that's obviously incredibly, incredibly empowering and motivational is the team. Right? When you have, when you've convinced, <laughs> somehow convinced six other wonderful people to come work with you when they could be working, you know, in a much bigger company, probably making significantly more money and they're here nights and they're here weekends and they're working to, for this, you know, it, that gives you the kind of energy that you can't get from anything else. So, Anastasia, I really want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for being here and for sharing your business story and for uh, letting us see kind of the behind the scenes of what goes on and what it takes to really, you know, have the, a startup company like you do. Um, I just really appreciate it. Uh, we definitely learned a lot. Thank you so much. No, thank you so much for having me. It was really nice to talk to you. You can get the show notes for today's show at bizwomenrock.com forward slash 42. I absolutely adored my conversation with Anastasia. She was absolutely brilliant. And my biggest takeaway from that was actually the fact that she really welcomes a lot of feedback from her team, from other people out there as she's been building her company. Um, you know, she kind of made the statement she, that she loves to be criticized and um, but really what she's looking for is she's always looking for people to help her see what she can, how she could do things better. Um, but she did say, you know, it's very important to make sure that you're listening to feedback and paying attention to that. But at the end of the day, you're staying true to who you are, what's important and not, you know, what was the word that she used? Not getting off the trajectory of what you're really there to do. So I really appreciated that. I really want to thank you so much for being here with me today and for listening. I always love hearing what you took from these conversations. So you can always go on Facebook, go on Twitter, go on to the, the website at bizwomenrock.com and, you know, just type in a comment. Let me know what you got out of these. It's very, very important for me to hear. I love it. So have a great day and I'll see you on the next episode. Mm -hmm.